Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. And speaking of embracing life, everyone loves getting lost in the pages of a great read, especially one that captivates you with a tale that is both riveting and rich with historical detail. Our guest today, Alan Frame, has written just such a book. Alan is a journalist, author, and broadcaster, and for much of his career, he's worked for newspapers in the U.K. as an editor and later as the executive editor for the Daily Express. He's also been a broadcaster for both BBC television and radio. But most recently, Alan has turned his well-honed talents to writing about two strong, talented, and highly successful women who made their respective marks in the fashion world of Paris in the late 1920s and 30s. His book is called Toto and Coco, and within its pages, Alan explores the fascinating and many-faceted lives of Toto Koopman and Coco Chanel. This is one heck of an amazing story, I've got to say. I can't wait to hear more from you, Alan, so welcome to the show. Wow, that's quite a build-up, Eileen. <laughs> well, uh, greetings from uh, rather miserable, cold, wet, lockdown London. Um, but uh, we're all we all try and keep cheerful anyway. That's the main thing. Uh, by the way, I must apologise for a rather croaky voice at the moment, but uh, I hope I'll struggle through. Well, we will make sure that you do and talk about struggles. Oh, my goodness, the struggles that these women went through, uh, especially Toto, of course. Uh, Captivating. I could not put this book down. Uh, Every once in a while, I would put it down because it just took a while to absorb this amazing story of these women. And I'd like to just begin, I'll talk a little bit about myself and uh, my peers, but I think most American women, uh, certainly my age, have heard of Coco Chanel, of course, but Toto Koopman, between the two, actually was the more interesting, and even you didn't know about her. So tell us a little bit about how you found out about Toto and what brought you to write this amazing story? Uh, I mean, well, about a year and a half ago, I was at a drinks party in London. Uh, and indeed, it was one that I wasn't even going to go to, but uh, I thought I ought to. And um, I met um, uh, a man who is now a great friend of mine, uh, John Kidd, who is uh, was the grandson of Lord Beaverbrook. Uh, and uh, Lord Beaverbrook um, you will know, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners will li- will know as well, was the um, the great uh, press magnet in the uh, uh, right through from 1915 to about 1964 when he died, and he owned, uh, among other papers, the Daily Express in London, uh, and I ended up there as executive editor, though after he had died. Um, so, alas, I never I never met Beaverbrook. But um, John told me uh, this fascinating story because he had been, he had also heard about Toto Koopman. And um, and so I started researching um, the book. And John also introduced me to his cousin, Laura Aiken, who is uh, another uh, uh, granddaughter. And uh, she had letters and notes from uh, Toto to her father, Max Aiken, Beaverbrook's son. And um, and they sort of really triggered the whole thing. Um, the the um, Beaverbrook, uh, apart from being a very 
rich and rather um, uh, uh, rather strange in many ways. Strange uh, press magnate was also cabinet minister in this country during the First World War and Second World War, and he was Churchill's best friend and ally. He was the man. <coughs> he was the man that Churchill would always refer to uh, for for an opinion. And um, and I think it's fair to say, um, going slightly off the subject, that if it hadn't been for Beaverbrook, Britain may not have won the Battle of Britain. And if we hadn't won <sighs> the Battle of Britain, in, uh, God knows what would have happened to the outcome of the war. The reason for that was that Churchill insisted he take over as ministry uh, as Minister of Aircraft Production. And in the first year, he doubled the... Uh, the output of Spitfires and Hurricanes, which was absolutely crucial to winning the Battle of Britain. But um, uh, just to, take, to get, get back to the main story, um, it was, um, uh, well, let's go, let's go back to 1929 when Toto arrived from London uh, in Paris. Toto had been born in uh, Jakarta in Indonesia um, in 1908 and her father was a cavalry colonel. They were a very uh, well-off family. And, um, but she had one disadvantage, or perceived disadvantage at the time, in that she was mixed race. Her mother was half Chinese. And in the strange mores of the time, uh, this was regarded as um, not the, uh, the, quite the thing. She was known as a green Dutch, um, mm. which was a very disparaging term for uh, children or indeed anybody who wasn't uh, a pure race, so to speak. But she was very clever. She spoke five languages <coughs> fluently and, and almost without accent, actually, and um, was extraordinarily beautiful and magnetic. And she became, she left London. She went to school in Holland and then off to a London finishing school, which for those who don't know, it was uh, rather uh, quaint and no longer um, uh, finishing, uh, finishing schools, I think were abandoned around the time of the debutante dances in London. But they taught girls to uh, flower arrange and, uh, and make themselves <laughs> up and a bit, of, a bit of gentle cooking now and again. So anyway, Toto went off to Paris in 29 to become a model, which is where she met Chanel, she was a model for Chanel for six months. And uh, Paris at that stage, in the middle of Les Années Fall, the uh, crazy years of Paris, was um, uh, a, a mixing, uh, mixing pot for everybody from Sa Salvador Dali and uh, Picasso and uh, um, Hemingway and all the, the sort of great artistic set at the time. And... Uh, and she fitted in perfectly. Um, and, of course, Coco Chanel was part of that set. She was extremely wealthy by then, and both from uh, fashion and uh, perfume. <coughs> and they saw each other on and off for 10 years. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry about the croakiness. Um, so that, that, I think, that tells you a little bit about Coke, uh, Toto um, and sets the scene. Um, do you want me to go on to 
Well, well, yes, I would like to say just I'm going to put a brief uh, note in here. Uh, that's kind of basically part one. And as a reader, it's so much uh, fun and interesting to read about that time because, of course, we've heard about the the other people who were in Paris and in that. And actually, Coco and Toto worked together for a while. They did. Um, uh, Coco, uh, Toto was uh, Coco's model for six months. But she didn't, uh, Toto didn't much like the way uh, Coco uh, was, well, I think the polite way of it is to say mauling her. She was, uh, she, when, when, there was, when it was time for fittings, she thought that uh, Coco was uh, rather more familiar with her than she liked. Now, both were bisexual. So, um, so I think she just didn't, she didn't, putting, putting it crudely, she didn't fancy Coco. Um, mm-hmm. But plenty of people did, and um, plenty of men did. Um, they both attracted a great deal of attention from both men and women, and uh, and both had affairs with both men and women, um, and um, uh, and they they never fell out. They remained friends, but they went very very different ways. Uh, we shall see during uh, when when war came. But Toto. Um, Toto became a spy for the British, and the, the genesis, genesis of that was her affair with Lord Beaverbrook. Now, Beaverbrook was five foot six, and even his mother wouldn't have described him as, as an attractive figure. But, I think you and, called him a frog, well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> well, I, I, you I, didn't, I, but I, I guess he reported that he had been <laughs> called a frog, I believe. Exactly, that's right. But he had two great advantages. One, he was he was charismatic. Number two, he was immensely wealthy. And, yeah. Um, uh, and he had friends in very, very high places. Um, and he made and uh, broke people as well. Um, but uh, uh, he, uh, he didn't, uh, he had, he knew all the European politicians. Uh, von Ribbentrop, the um, German ambassador, was a, was a friend. And um, uh, Toto was at the dinner tables with uh, Beaverrook and Churchill and uh, von Ribbentrop and just about everybody you can imagine from that mid-30s cast list. And um, so she became absolutely fascinated by this new found interest in politics. Uh, she, um, mm. The fact that she spoke so many European languages um, and she loved opera and ballet, meant that she she often toured the capitals of Europe listening to opera. And um, Beaverbrook Beaver encouraged her to keep her eyes, and particularly her ears open, as to what was going on. <clears throat> so she, she essentially became a sort of amateur spy by about 36 or 37 and then was introduced to the head of MI6, or I should say the deputy head of MI6, later to become what would commonly be known these days as Adam, as in James Bond. And she went off with more, pur- with more purpose then to actually uh, really bring back proper information, and that she did. For instance, she... Um, she was the first to 
revealed to the British authorities that the Duke of Windsor, the uncrowned King of England, uh, was planning a visit with Mrs. Simpson to Hitler. And uh, indeed, that's, as we all know, that's exactly what happened. So some of her information was becoming very useful indeed. Um, well, and at the same, oh, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but at the same time, no, no, you uh, Toto was doing things like that. Coco was doing very different things. Ah, she was indeed. Well, her great love in the 30s was the Duke of Westminster. Now, the Duke of Westminster, second Duke of Westminster, was probably the, possibly one of the richest men in the world and probably the richest man in Europe. And that's saying something in those days. Um, he uh, he had uh, uh, three wives, and she spanned Coco's affair with Westminster, spanned wives number one and two. And uh, particularly, he was extremely right-wing. He was essentially Hitler's cheerleader in this country. Um, a pretty odious uh, fellow by all accounts. But they, they, there was a lot of um, support for what Hitler was doing in the UK because um, a lot of a lot of people, not only in the UK but elsewhere, feared the rise of communism, as was seen obviously in Russia, and it was sort of infiltrating all over the place. <clears throat> and they saw that what Hitler was doing was uh, a very useful contrast to uh, communism. So for a long time, there was great support for him, um, and I'm sure that that probably was even the case in the States. But um, but we all know what what happened then. Uh, but Toto was an out-and-out anti-Semite. She was um, brought up to be, and she got worse as, as time went on. And when, um, when Toto became an Allied spy and fought with the resistance in Italy, Toto, uh, sorry, Coco, was Agent Westminster, uh, a fully qualified, or sorry, probably not quite remotely qualified, but nevertheless, um, uh, a numbered uh, Nazi agent uh, living in the Ritz throughout the war uh, with um, a Gestapo lover, um, von Dinklage. Well, and the, the juxtaposition of how these two women uh, who had once worked together, uh, again, briefly, six months yeah. or so, like you say, but how their lives unfolded in such with such different passions in such different ways. And I'm thinking of Coco in the Ritz and Toto. I don't want to give away too much of the story, but Toto was definitely <laughs> not living in the Ritz. No, she certainly wasn't. She... Um... She joined the resistance uh, in Italy, and um, she thought for a while she could just uh, stay in the hotel she was staying in and get the information and then uh, come back and relay it. That just wasn't practical. So she she had a choice. Do I do this uh, part-time, which is not going to be possible, or do I do it fully? And she joined up and was a fully committed member of the, the Italian resistance. And uh, she lived in in caves for a while in Tuscany. Uh, she lived in farmhouses which had been deserted. Uh, she lived wherever and, and uh, wherever that she could, along with the rest of the partisans. And uh, it, life was a great, great change from 
how it had been. I mean, she is used to staying in the finest hotels and the finest houses and eating the finest food and wearing the finest clothes. And suddenly uh, there was uh, there's none of that at all. And she uh, her, her diet became anything that could be foraged, um, whether it be plants or indeed animals, um, frogs and uh, and hedgehogs and uh, anything you like, really, that was available. But it, it sustained her and she her, um, her sense of purpose was absolute. Um, I should add there that um, uh, Beaverbrook had built three great big 130 feet high listening towers at his country home near London. <clears throat> and she was able to relay messages back to there and also get uh, get um, instructions from there as well. So um, uh, she played a, really a, quite a vital part in the war. Well, and the thing, like you said, she could have so easily chosen and was used to living the fine life. She could have uh, actually been at the Ritz probably next in the next room to Coco. But she had such a strong sense of duty, such a strong sense of conscience, such a strong sense of, you know, right and wrong that she chose, like Mm -hmm. you said, chose to really follow uh, what she believed to be right. And it was right. Thank goodness. And she wasn't paid for it either. She did it. In fact, not only was she not paid for it, she had to sell uh, a lot of her furs and jewelry in order to try and finance the uh, the uh, resistance. So, but she did what was right, and thank God she did. Well, and in part two, I just want to say, uh, part two, I have never read anything to that extent. Uh, and again, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but. Boy, uh, Toto really had some incredible challenges that, you know, it's just, it's amazing that she was able to live through those and, and survived. I'm wondering uh, for you, Alan, writing part two, how did you do that? Um, well, um, it was a question of what not to put in, really. Um, uh, some of the um, – uh, we, we, we must tell listeners, really, that um, – uh, Toto was eventually caught in uh, in 1944 um, uh, in um, in Venice and uh, was sent to Ravensbrück women's concentration camp yes. um, oh. north, north of Berlin and that's where life got very tough and I, I think all your listeners will realise just how tough it it was. We've all sadly we've all seen footage and uh, read about the concentration camps. Um, and I think um, whatever you see on television in the old newsreels uh, is probably, um, it just gives you an idea, but it doesn't really give you any detail of what what was going on. And it was as grim as grim could be. And she lost, when she came out, and she did come out, uh, she was lucky not to die there. Um, um, and she she was rescued in the end by the Swedish Red Cross when Germany was on the brink of defeat. In fact, when she was um, she was leaving the camp in the Swedish Red Cross buses, uh, they could hear the the gunfire of the Russian army um, descending on uh, on Berlin. And um, mm. but she had lost half her weight. She was down to just over about four and a half stone, I think. <coughs> 
um, off to Sweden to try to recover. But she was obviously um, she had she was shorn of her hair, and um, she had been um, subject of these appalling medical experiments on uh, that were going on <sighs> on women, um, uh, which some really defied description, and um, uh, she was in a terrible, terrible way. It's interesting. Well, it's not interesting. It's terrible that uh, a lot of the women who survived, never, ever spoke about it. They didn't tell their husbands. Yeah. They didn't tell their children after, after, if they had them. And sadly, some, some committed suicide. And some of the Russian prisoners, uh, when they finally got back to Russia, um, were suspected by the communists of being Nazi uh, collaborators and were killed. So uh, it didn't oh quite end. God. It didn't end. No, I mean... Gates are Wow, Alan, and I'm thinking too. Uh, again, you wrote. I, I've read, you know, stories about the Holocaust, and I've seen films and things like that. But the detail you have in this book, uh, uh, like I say, it must have been awfully difficult to write. It was, it was hard to read, but it was important to read. And you really see yeah. how totally. I mean, strong. How what a what a um, a woman this was. What a spirit to be able to live through that and go on the way yeah. she did. Especially someone who had lived in such luxury before those times. Well, the contrast is extraordinary. Um, and meanwhile, Coco Chanel, uh, state of the Ritz. She undertook one very very odd and peculiar um, mission on behalf of the Nazis. She. Uh, she went to Madrid with her lover, uh, von Dinklage, uh, to try to arrange peace between Hitler and uh, Churchill. Now, she knew Churchill, and in fact, Churchill had been a great admirer of Chanel because they met while shooting and hunting on the Duke of Windsor, uh, the Duke of um, Westminster's estate in the early 30s. <coughs> and... Um, with that friendship in mind, she thought that uh, she would be the ideal uh, middlewoman. Um, but it was a ridiculous mission because the war was going badly for Germany by then. And uh, Churchill had decided, along with the other allies, that it was um, had to be total surrender or, uh, or nothing. And the world war would go on until Germany was defeated. Uh, so the, uh, that mission, um, if it... If it if it really could be called a mission, came to absolutely nothing, and um, and was uh, and she just went back with tail between her legs back to the Ritz, and one one wonders, and indeed um, many questions have been asked: is how come she um, escaped prosecution at the end of the war um, from yeah. the Free French to go, and she claims. I don't think we'll ever know, but she claims that Churchill had uh, intervened to save her. Um, I think it's possible. I don't think it's. Uh, I, I just don't know the answer to that. Well, Alan, I mean, the two women again. Uh, <laughs> it, it, this is such a fascinating story. Now, are there any plans ahead for this book that you'd like to share? Well, uh, it's funny you should say that because in four hours' time, I have a conversation. Uh, via their old Zoom, which we've all got so used to in in 
during the pandemic <laughs> right. uh, with a Hollywood producer. Um, we've we've had four approaches uh, for a book or sorry for a film or sort of Netflix type TV series. Um, oh. And um, and uh, I, I'm I'm having the second uh, a Zoom meeting tonight with uh, with uh, one of these guys who is a producer in Hollywood. So we'll see. I mean, I thought the moment I started writing the book that uh, this would make the most extraordinary film. Um, uh, so who knows? I'll let you know, uh, Eileen. You can tell the nation. <laughs> I will what definitely do that. What a pleasure. Well, Alan, I, I again, thank you so much. Uh, this book, I, I wrote you before we went on air, that it's still swirling in my head. It is. If you pick this book, and I encourage everyone out there, get a copy of Toto and Coco. Uh, this story is so I don't know how, I, like I say, I wish I was as articulate as you. I keep thinking amazing, riveting, <laughs> whatever. But, Alan, you have really presented such a, a, an incredible read for people out there. Do you have any final thoughts or uh, any hopes that you want your readers to take away from the book? Well, um, well, no. First of all, I'd say um, you said I would wish you uh, as articulate as me, uh, I don't know about that. You, at least your voice is working at the moment, which mine isn't. But uh, but I don't normally sound as croaky as this. Uh, but um, I yes, I, I um, well we've been I've been I've been very lucky to actually got this subject because it's it, it sort of I wouldn't say it writes itself, but there's so much there that is truly heroic uh, in the case of Toto, and uh, and uh, I think. Really, we should never forget the lessons of the past, frankly, because um, uh, there's all sorts of uh, terrible things going on in the world. And we all think that the Holocaust was the last time there was ever mass murder. Well, of course, that's not the case at all. I I wish it was, but it's going on everywhere. Uh, So um, hopefully it will provide a, a good adventure read for people, but it will have its own lessons as well. Well, Alan, uh, they certainly had a lesson for me, and I really hear you are feeling a little croaky, a little chilly, and, and took the time to come on and share with um, my listeners and me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Eileen. My pleasure. Happy Christmas, by oh, the way. Well, and I do, if I could say this, if I could underscore this as much as I possibly can, Please do yourself a favor. Grab a copy of Toto and Coco, and fingers crossed you'll be able to see it soon on the little screen or the big screen or one of those screens because this story is rich, complex, inspiring, and as Alan just said, we need to remember the lessons of the past, and boy, do we all. So until next time, this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio saying I'll catch you later. Bye-bye.